Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is just a reminder that everything on the podcast is intended to be informational, educational, and entertaining. This is no way a substitute for therapy or the therapeutic process. If you find yourself in need of more direct support, please reach out for professional help. Or if you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or call 911. Hey everyone, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. Today I have with me a very special guest. She is a coach, consultant, and a community builder. I have Kate McCracken. Hi, Kate. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for being willing to join me. I'm excited to have this conversation. Uh, So I'm going to start like I start with all of my guests and ask, what is your labor of love? I love that question. I also love that it's abbreviated LOL, by the way. Um, My labor of love is self-love and figuring out how to embrace and accept myself enough to give my gifts to the world through my work, which is lots of different things, actually. Yes. So I I really love the way that's um, the way that's phrased, because I I truly believe that um, we have gifts and just like any other gift, like when we think tangible things, usually if you get, a, if you have a, if it's, if it's a gift is for someone, right? So we have these gifts that are intended for other people, but if we do not love, accept, and come to a place of confidence within ourselves, then that really can create a barrier to giving those gifts that we have freely or willingly or openly. So I would love uh, for you to tell us a little bit about how you came to uh, identify your labor of love in the way that you did. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to. So gifts are a core part of my belief system too. I started my career straight out of college in mental health and had the pleasure of working in a recovery-oriented mental health environment where we were, we're really helping people develop a quality life, a quality of life, and get meaningful roles back in the community after pretty severe experiences with mental illness. And a core of our work was helping folks understand their gifts, the things that they were uniquely positioned to do and be in the world because of all of their life experience, wounds included. And so like lots of people, I had a childhood in America that had some trauma. (laughs) I had some places and spaces where I did not feel seen or heard um, or that I didn't belong. And so learning to come to a full realization of myself and a full expression of myself in all of the vibrance that I am has been a lifelong journey. I just turned 40. So I feel like I'm reaching a good pivotal moment of strength here. But Uh essentially, um, things that I know about myself and my gifts are that after years of not feeling seen or heard or having a sense of belonging myself, I find that I can create that for other people really easily. Um, It comes naturally to me to connect with folks and really understand their needs and be able to validate them. And I have a soft spot in my heart for 
anyone who's part of an identity group or a community that is marginalized or otherwise pushed out to the side and really wanting to create opportunities for community and connection. So when I love myself enough to pursue my drive to connection, then I'm able to create all of these opportunities for connection that not only I benefit from, but other people do as well. Yes. Yes, yes, and more yes. <laughs> um, before moving forward into kind of how this manifests in your life and how it shows up, I would love to spend just a couple of minutes talking about this idea of not being seen and not being heard and how that directly impacts our our gift development um, and our gift giving, our ability to receive you know, I know I, I definitely have some thoughts around that, but I want to throw it to you first to just uh, what comes to mind when you think about whether your own experience of of lacking a sense of belonging or just how you sh- have how you see it show up now. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. So I grew up in Orange County, California, a place that I say uh, really value sameness, right? There's a lot of suburban tract housing and you only have three to five different shades of beige. You can paint your house, that sort of thing. We didn't exactly live in that neighborhood, but there was still the same value of of sameness. There was a common religion there, which was generally just Protestant born-again Christianity, um, a common um, income level, at least in most of the neighborhoods that we think of when we think of Orange County, and a common race, white. Um, And there were certainly things about that that were my life experience. I grew up in a middle-class family um, that is white passing. My mother is Mexican, but we appear white, and my father was white. Uh, And there were no reasons on the surface why we shouldn't fit in there or I didn't fit in there, but I always found myself questioning and thinking about the experiences I was having and the stuff that my neighbors thought that we should believe because within the doors of my family home, we didn't necessarily have the same beliefs and thinking, this is strange. Why are we all supposed to think the same things? Hmm. Um, And when my father got ill when I was a child, I was around 10 when it happened. He died when I was 11. My mother encouraged us to keep a lot of secrets. So my dad was gay and decided um, to have some experiences outside of his marriage and got infected with HIV and died of AIDS-related complications. And we were supposed to lie and say he had cancer. And then my little brother um, went through some pretty intense mental health stuff and stabilizing his mental health and keeping him okay became a priority in the new version of our family. So there was this foundation of secrecy and then this experience where because I was, and I'm making air quotes here, okay, you know, able to perform Mm -hmm. functioning at a certain level where my needs became deprioritized and we were tending to the person that that was in most critical need, which makes sense. I didn't like it as a child, but I get it. (laughs) My mother was certainly doing the best that she could. And when I think about that experience in my life and my understanding of gifts and needs, I think that we're survivors, right? As humans, we have this survival instinct, this certain amount of resilience where our brains and our bodies will make up these habits and routines to make things work. And so the circumstances I was in required me to find a way to get attention and affection and connection. And I could do that by really 
clearly and quickly honing in on what other people needed and meeting those needs. And for a lot of years, that resulted in some pretty unhealthy codependent relationships. <laughs> and then after a lot more years of healing and work on it, it it can manifest as a gift where I can still have healthy boundaries and know that I need to tend to my own needs with the same level of intensity that I may be able to for others. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing so much of that and the foundation of some of these things in your life. Um, some commonalities that really stuck out to me is this idea of secrecy. Mm. Um, and, you know, I've shared openly um, in the past about uh, the childhood sexual abuse that I've experienced and the nature of secrecy that comes along with that. Yes. Not to mention, I just grew up in a, in a culture that what happens in this house stays in this house. You know, we don't, we just don't go out talking to other people about what's going on. And I understood that to me, not even other people in our family. So it's not, don't just don't tell strangers. It's, you know, there is this air of what happens in here stays in here. And just the, the, the message that sends to a child. Yeah. Um, by the time we're seven, we know how the world works. Now, as children, we don't realize that it's really just how our family works or how our <laughs> community works or how our church works or how that works. We, we, we think that's how the world works. And that's what I call our template, the worldviews, the belief systems and the behavioral patterns that we develop throughout that time. And after seven, we continue to learn things, but it really just gets played and overlaid into the, the template that we already have established. And so I just think about how shape-shifting and people-pleasing is how I defined my, my experience with that. Um, but I love what you said, which is exactly it. Learning how to hone in very quickly and astutely on what other people need and want and expect, and then morphing into whatever that thing or person is for the sake of survival and survival being, being seen, being heard, um, being what we think is valued, um, being noticed, having attention, feeling some sort of belonging and love. So I can, I can just resonate with like so much of what you said and how that became a regular pattern as I'm writing my book and going back into some pretty significant events that happened in my life, it's amazing to me how pervasive these patterns were, though I didn't see them as those things growing up. It's just who I was, right? It's another notion of, you know, my trauma was manifesting, but I was considering it personality. This is just what Shonda does. This is just who she is. Um, and so, yeah, I really appreciate that. So when you talk about um, how healing in the process of healing has led you to a place where you can create spaces of belonging and safety for others. Tell us a little bit about how, uh, what that looks like in your world. Yeah, absolutely. So I moved here to Cincinnati two years ago. That's how we know each other. We met in person and uh -huh. moved here from Los Angeles, California, and did so because I had always wanted to try living somewhere else. I don't have much more of an explanation from that of that, but as a kid, I even used to ask, "Why don't we ever move?" Um, and so, when I had the opportunity, I moved my family across the country, and we chose Cincinnati because we were drawn to it. It felt like home. And 
the one thing besides, of course, the treasured people in my life who were local there that I missed right away and that I continue to miss is the fat community that I found in Los Angeles. A couple years before, I had started going to this dance aerobics class called Fat Kid Dance Party. And prior to that experience, I had been someone who claimed that I did not dance. That was my story about myself, um, that I wasn't good at it, and therefore I just didn't do it. And I started going to this class, and I remember a couple classes in, I would feel so into it and feel so free moving my body in this way, and then I would catch a glimpse of myself in the mirror, and I was like, oh, God, Um, not because of the way my body looked, but because how not good at dancing I still was um, (laughs) from, from a supposedly objective external point of view. Um. And then a month or two after that, I caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror and was like, oh, I'm doing it. I'm on the beat. I got the moves. I'm actually doing it. And this experience of physical movement really changed my relationship with my body. I had been on a journey for several years to recover from dieting. I would say I was on a diet from the point I was 18 years old until around that time. So 38, so about 20 years um, and believed myself and my lack of discipline to be the failure there had no sense of the idea of body diversity and that we come in different shapes and sizes and that health can exist in different shapes and sizes and had just really bought into the mainstream view that if you're fat, it's because you're bad, lazy, unhealthy, don't have enough willpower, have failed too many times, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And a few years before Fat Kid Dance Party, I had already stopped dieting. I was clear that that was no longer going to work, but I was still on what I would call the self-love diet, (laughs) where I thought, oh, if I just love myself enough, then I'll lose weight. And um, Fat Kid Dance Party and the community that I built there really connected me to the fat positive community, the body liberation community, in a way that helped me see, oh, loving myself isn't necessarily going to make my body change. My body might change, but that's not what this is about. That can't be the core of this for me, or it will continue to be inauthentic and performative in some ways. And so when I moved here to Cincinnati... I wanted to be careful not to start too many things too soon. I tend to be a starter of things, but I really wanted to understand this community and what was needed and what was wanted. And again, where I could give my gifts. And I started talking to folks because there are plenty of people living in large bodies out here in the Midwest. And everyone was like, yes, let's do it. Let's do it. And so I started a Facebook group first called the Cincinnati Body Liberation Community. We celebrated our year anniversary in March. And we went from being five people to 200 people in that first year. Wow. Having events like our pool party where folks came up to me and told me they hadn't been in a swimsuit in public in 20 years because they were just so deeply ashamed. And it's clear to me that this this community and being a part of this community is evidence of a healed expression of my gifts because it's not about me. The community really creates and holds itself and it's I'm getting something from it. I have a sense of belonging and a sense of purpose, but it doesn't um, it's not required to make me feel full or whole. It's just a way of sharing my wholeness with others and inviting them to bring theirs as well. 
So I want to highlight just a few things in what you just said that really resonate with me. Um, And it's thinking about so many of my uh, experiences growing up, you know, body image and my size have been one of the foundational identities, my body and the body that I live in has, yeah, it has been pivotal and central in so much of my life. And I'm saying that as a Black woman as well. My size and my body has been, um, and the way people interact with me based on it, and my perception of it has been more foundational in many ways than my race and than my gender. Um, yeah, so as you were talking, I'm like, mm-hmm, yeah. I, I, I think part of my shape-shifting and my people-pleasing impacted how I would try to show up in the world. And this was one way that I realized I had done a tremendous amount of growth as I've been reflecting on my years. When I was younger, I realized that when I daydreamed, um, future-oriented daydreaming, I always daydreamed myself in, a, in another body. Mm. It was always a body that was smaller. And see, the thing wasn't really about being skinny. It wasn't about being small. It was about being smooth. So it was the kind of eradication of any lumps and bumps and rolls and fat that could be seen. And when I realized how much I envisioned myself in another body, and sometimes as a young person, this would be um, like, it, it for me, it was pretty comparable. I don't recall ever having a thought, um, you know, you go into a store, someone doesn't greet you right away. And I don't think it's uncommon for someone to say, well, if I were a different race, right? If I were a different race, I wonder if that would happen. Or if I were a male, I wonder if that would happen. I didn't have those thoughts, but I constantly thought, I wonder if I was in a smaller body, if that would have happened. Mm -hmm. I wonder if they would have engaged with me differently if I was in a smaller body. And when you talk about um, the societal Uh, what am I thinking for? Just kind of the way we were. So let me put it this way. I had the revelation the other day when I started to think about the evolution of my relationship with my body. I came to the point where I had to ask myself, why do I believe it was like that in the first place? And I realized I was taught to hate my body. I I was taught to hate my body by not seeing images that looked like me. Um by seeing images that were of a body type that I would likely never naturally achieve and being told that was the standard. And what I came to realize is in addition to getting the message that I wasn't enough, I wasn't good enough, everyone else around me was getting the same message. So when I would have moments of hatred and disgust for my body, it seems like everyone else was reinforcing those things because they had been given the same messages that I had. And when I started to heal from my various traumas, reconciling and coming into safe, full and healthy relationship with my body has been one of the pivotal experiences in my healing journey. And I realized that it wasn't about changing my body that led me to do that which I always thought if I just were smaller, because for me, it wasn't as much about the number. It was what it looked like. So I never focused, hyper-focused on weight. It was size. And if I was smaller or at least could appear smaller, then I could love my body. And that, that was not 
true. Um, and so I, I definitely um, appreciate this idea and this healing journey of coming into full, safe, and healthy relationship with my body. So those things really stood out. I definitely appreciate that. Um, and so I would love to hear more just about the Sense of Fatty community, um, what that looks like, what that entails. And even for someone who may be listening and saying, I need some of that in my life. Like, what can you tell us about that? Absolutely. So I'll, I'll tell a story again, because this is how I, I think. But um, I would say that when I started Sense of Fatty, I was a reluctant leader. And at this stage in my life, a year and a half later, things have already shifted. But I was a reluctant leader because I was still, even though I had been on a journey of self-love, including body love or body acceptance um, for quite a while, I was still not practicing the level of, I like to call it self-tending. I'm a little allergic to the word self-care, which I can talk about later (laughs) if you want. But I I was not practicing the amount of self-tending that it really requires for me to put myself and my gifts out there in the world and feel safe doing it. Um, There was still a maybe somewhat disembodied or performative aspect of allowing myself to be seen. And it, it often resulted in being authentic, but it was very scary and it took a lot of emotional energy and I would get quite worn out afterward. And I, I'm proud to say that I feel differently right now um, after really getting serious yeah. about self-tending and noticing the ways that that um, changes my relationship to being out in the world um, and having a having four months inside <laughs> away from those social events created a lot of space to discover that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, back to the point. I was a reluctant leader. Um, and so when I came to the table with this idea of having a community that was built for and by community, it was because I was hiding in some ways. Um, but I have also seen in my work, um, as a coach, as a consultant, as a leadership development professional, that folks really rely on leaders to set the tone, to set the vision, to name what they can expect so that they can feel safe, so they can engage. And so I picked a few things that I could commit to, which were that I wanted this to be about body liberation, not necessarily body love, not necessarily about fat positivity, because I think while fat people are marginalized by fat phobia and all the things you and I both described about our experience growing up in these bodies, um, fat phobia harms everyone. Marginalized fat is fat people, but really harms everyone. And so I wanted it to be for people in different size bodies, different experience of body. Uh, and I wanted to be clear that there were some values and beliefs that I was bringing in that were pretty non-negotiable. Things like the awareness that fat phobia is rooted in anti-blackness, especially mm-hmm. for women. Um, things like recognizing that I am a white woman here in the city of Cincinnati, uh, which is diverse in a way that Los Angeles is not. Los Angeles is certainly diverse and has many segregated neighborhoods, but the places that I live and interact and spend time with in Cincinnati are pretty much half and half black and white for the most part. And that was an experience I did not have in California. And I didn't want to show up here as a leader in this space thinking I knew what people of different identities and from this part of the world needed. But again, there were some values. 
Um, and so I wrote kind of a little manifesto. <laughs> and when we had enough people in the group, I wrote it as the group rules and I shared it with folks. And we had a good dialogue, particularly around gender, like who was this work for and trying to be more expansive around um, gender, both the binary and beyond the binary. And um, I got a little taste of what my reluctant leadership could look like if it was truly collaborative leadership. So it started as reluctant. I was trying to hold back, but that invited me to step back in a way that did create space for others. And then they did. And it was amazing. And amazing I got to how act, that happens. Yes. Um, I got to act like a supporter, the person who knew it was all possible and could help connect people to resources to make it happen. And initially that started with events. So when it was safe to meet in person, I would say our community had two dynamics. We have the Facebook group where folks are engaging, sharing resources, talking about difficult experiences and getting support, sharing funny jokes and memes. Um, I try to avoid having it be a place where we vent and complain about the harms of living in a fat phobic world outside of someone's personal experience. So yeah, let's talk about your personal experience, but let's not have this be a place to just share harmful memes that our friends and family are passing around on Facebook already. Um, and then outside the online space, we were doing stuff in person. We had a tea party, we had a book club, we had the pool party, uh, we had a clothing swap. And when we can resume in-person events again, I think the, the book club, the pool party, and the clothing swap are going to be regularly occurring events because those were big hits for folks. They gave, they gave access to, in the pool, I already said, a sense of freedom in your body and cooling off in the summer um, and just play that sometimes those of us living in fat bodies don't let us access. The clothing swap, as you know, Shauna, it is so hard to find cute and affordable plus size clothing, um, whether you are dressing as a woman, uh, wearing women's clothes and making air quotes or men's clothes. It's just hard. The access isn't there. Um, the prices are marked up. And then for the book club, it got to be a place for us to do some self-education, you know, reading The Body is Not an Apology. Um, reading things no one will tell fat girls, great stories that helped us connect to our own internal sense of, again, body appreciation or liberation or neutrality. No, that's amazing. I want to make sure we add those books that you just uh, mentioned, The Body is Not an Apology. Um, and the second one, uh, things. What's the, what was the title of that one? Uh, Things No One Will Tell Fat Girls. That's by Jess Baker. She also has another book that's more of a memoir called Land Whale. And then The Body Is Not an Apology is by Sonia Renee Taylor. That is definitely yes. core reading. <laughs> it, it really is. Now, I've probably mentioned this a hundred times. I am a terrible reader because I can I absorb so much. <laughs> so I'm reading like probably 10 books right now. That's one uh -huh. of them. Uh, I can get through three pages and be like, oh, and then that takes me for like two months. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, I'm really bad at starting and finishing books, but I can, man, I can glean out of those two or three pages so much. Um, I would so say that's make... happening for me with The Body Is Not an Apology. I've been reading it yeah. for two years now. I, I just have to take it one chunk at a time. It's so you rich. Do. It is so rich. Yeah. So it is definitely a book I'm reading. We'll have that in the show notes. Kate, I wanted to go back 
and just allow you an opportunity to expand a little bit on um, talking about how fat phobia is rooted in anti-blackness. So if a listener, one, I, if you could talk a little bit and define fat phobia, because I am aware that um, there are probably listeners who have never even heard the term or are curious about what that is. And then if you can talk a little bit about maybe its origin or this idea that it is rooted in anti-blackness. Yeah, absolutely. So fat phobia, like other things that we name as phobia in our American society, like homophobia, are is this idea that because we are afraid of something, it is different uh, from the dominant norm, that it is somehow shameful and should be feared for its unknowingness and because we don't want to end up that way. That's how I would understand fat phobia. I also tend to refer to diet culture as being somewhat synonymous, just different sentence uses, usage as fat phobia. Diet culture being this idea that we are all supposed to be in pursuit of that idealized body we see portrayed in the media. And that if we are not that body, and if we're not in pursuit of that body, then we are somehow shameful and don't deserve our, our role in society. Um, these are things like you described in your experience, Shonda, that are taught to us from a young age just by the images that we're exposed to and everyone else being exposed to those things and buying into them and then reinforcing those ideas over and over and over. So unlearning fat phobia or unlearning our role in diet culture is like unlearning any other socialized experience we have where we have to really start to discern, oh, why do I believe that? Is that is that based in truth? And start to dismantle our relationship with it by challenging it, which is hard, by the way, when the rest of the world continues to reinforce it. But there's a pretty big movement um, for those who are interested that I would say the health at every size movement is probably the most active and accessible, especially if folks are new to this, to understanding what science actually does tell us about body size and body diversity and how we can, since this seems to be folks' primary concern, access health in a body of any size. Uh, in terms of the roots in anti-Blackness, there's a great book that I have also only started, <laughs> not finished, but it is called Fearing the Black Body. I don't have the author's um, name on hand, but I'm sure we can put it in the show notes. Absolutely. Um, there are there are lots of theories about fatness in history and where it shows up. You know, many fat activists will um, name the Venus of Willendorf, which is that little uh, ancient statue that you've seen that has large, full breasts and a big pregnant looking belly. It's a symbol of fertility, I believe. And they'll name that as, uh, as evidence that um, fatness was revered or it meant plenty or richness in, in different times throughout human history. When I've looked into that, I have found that none of that is officially proven or vetted <laughs> by any consistent number of sources. Um, but we certainly have some stories in our, in our lexicon about when and how fatness was okay. But certainly in the United States, um, which when it was colonized from people from Western Europe was primarily white and not a lot of people living in fat bodies, likely because of what was available to them in terms of diet and um, lifestyle at the time. Uh, 
white bodies looked different than the enslaved Africans that were robbed from their homes and brought to the Americas. And so in the same ways that anti-Blackness was based on these early colonial ideas of what they assumed when they met African people and, and they used to dehumanize African people to rationalize slavery, we made the same associations about body style and type um, that were, of course, environmental in nature and what folks needed and wanted, um, wanted is probably not accurate, what people needed in their environment to be successful, to survive, to live, to be abundant. And so seeing different body types and having those attributed largely to Black women in America now, we think of big butts, big hips, the things that Kardashians have now made popular. Um, those were initially vilified because they were associated with blackness and we were supposed to dehumanize blackness so that we could continue to marginalize black people in America. So it's been a long time since all of that happened, but I, the way I would describe it is that the, the echoes or the shadows of that initial dehumanization is still influencing our ideas about body size, type, shape, culture today and continuing to cause great harm. Absolutely. And I'm not going to veer too far off, but hey, man, and <laughs> not that it's new, but people need, yeah, it's love bringing on guests and having conversations that can help people think outside of um, really the way they may have viewed things. And, and when I look at, um, kind of how the black woman's body is viewed. It, it, it fascinates me. So on one hand, this country doesn't exist without black women bodies. Mm -hmm. um, just period. I, I mean that the fact that our bodies have been needed and, and used and profited from in very tangible ways, only then to take the, um, the, the image of that and vilify it or, or make it less than. It, it is just mind boggling the dissonance that we have in this country. Um, when I was just thinking about, um, I, I don't even remember what I was doing or why I was doing it, but I came across um, this story um, of a black enslaved woman whose infant, whose child died because she was forced to breastfeed and nurse the white children before her own. Yes. Just think about the use of her body and her own child died. And then the fullness of her breasts that literally kept white children alive, then go on to be propagated as not good. Like the disgustingness of that just makes me angry. <laughs> it, it, you know, it wells up that that's so much of, um, of our labor and our beauty has been uh, historically and narratively stripped away, yet we can maintain that. So that, that's one thing that came up. Um, we maintain it, but then to this greater society, it's still considered less than. So that's one thing. And the other thing was these um, unattainable goals. So one, there is a lot of money to be made <laughs> off of people hating themselves. So this is what, like, if nothing else, 
Kate is saying some great stuff. Take lots away. But if nothing else, there is a lot of money and a lot of supremacy to be maintained by us hating ourselves. As long as there is an image that we are striving for, that is unattainable. I came to this conclusion at one point when I don't even know who I was talking to, but like whoever they put on, you know, what is it, Vanity Fair, um, whatever magazine you can think of, and it's still airbrushed. It doesn't matter who you put before you or who they put before this common society to say, okay, this will be acceptable only after we change the, the, the hue of their skin and we, we take away some of the girth of their body. Like it, and so there is money being made and it's not by us. And when I was thinking about growing up, I grew up in Detroit, uh, 98% Detroit, where I'm, I'm surrounded by black people, 98% black surroundings, right? I, it wasn't that necessarily. So there was this um, media image, television, things like that. So there was this European standard of beauty. But even within my own community, there was still this unattainable um, body type. So growing up, you know, this is when Sir Mix-a-Lot Baby got back. Mm-hmm. Was out, you know, popular song, you know, and it's like 36, 24, 36, only if she's 5'3". I mean, listen to that. Yep. And I want you to go and find some 5'3", 36, 24, 36. That ain't the majority of the bodies up out here, right? That is just not what it is. And now I think they have a name for it. I came across skinny thick. What? Right is that right <laughs> so there is still this achievement like okay we're going to we're going to deny the european standards of beauty you don't have to be you know extremely thin and da 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 da, da but you got to have big hips with a big old booty you got to have this and your waist and it's just and 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 the images that get perpetuated so now we have the instagram models who we this is where a lot of people are you know, if we're no longer watching mainstream television and these images, they're totally still there, are not getting access directly to us, then we have a new, it, it will follow us wherever we are yeah. just to show us this image. And if that's not it, following that picture of some version of 36, 24, 36 is the diet pills or the tea or the waist trainers or, or the, all of the things that say, Oh, you're, you're not that, but don't worry about it here. Take this, spend your money, try to have that image and, and you'll feel better. But what we're finding out is we don't feel better. Nope. There's never an end to it. There's a new thing for someone to tell you to feel bad about so they can profit off of it. Absolutely. And if you can get your body there, oh, what's going on with your hair? Mm-hmm. Oh, like and, and there is this thing. Okay. So I said, I want to go too far, but for real, I'm, I'm, I'm come back. but so there is this thing, you know, I historically have not worn makeup as a, a, a regular practice. You know, if there was a big event, I like prom, uh, my wedding. <laughs> I wore makeup, you know, but it's not something this routine. And over the last couple of months, I've been a little curious, not from a place of necessarily I want to do, yeah, I look different or nope, I, I'm cool. I, I do have a face routine that I really love that it's helping my skin just glow and all that naturally, but I've been playing with makeup. 
And and so, yeah, I want to shout out the Lip Bar. It's a Black-owned um, makeup company, and their lipstick is bomb, okay? okay? The matte, all day. I'm talking eat a sandwich, drink some juice, kiss on your loved ones, and at the end of the day, you still got that lipstick on. So wow. highly endorse it for its quality. Um, and then there was uh, a person that reached out to me that was selling, like, products and stuff. Whole point being, um, they there are, like, four or five different products from one company just around your eyes. Mm. Firm up this, do this, do that. And I found myself getting irritated, not because it's available, but there is one more thing. You got a whole skin routine down, right? Your skin is, it's clean. Your pores are doing what they're supposed to be doing. You're going, oh, but let's look at the eyes. And here are five different expensive products that you can buy and, and this is going towards anti-aging, which is a different discussion, but not really. Right. It's not. You know, you have this body and by God, don't get old. <laughs> okay. It's and when you do get old, <laughs> it's kind of like, yeah. And when you do get old and we realize we can't, then we just shift the narrative a little bit because 30 is the new 20. Mm. 40 is the new 30. No, it's not. 40 is the same 40 it's been since 40 was a thing. <laughs> but it just becomes this idea of don't get older, have this body. And when we are able to step back just a little bit and look at the damage it is doing, I want to say to our kids, but that's not accurate to all of us. Yes. To all of us. And, and yeah. So, all right, I'm back. Um, <laughs> rain it in but it, it, it is I, I'm, I'm passionate about it because I can still viscerally feel sometimes how I felt growing up Yeah, feeling as if literally I was unlovable because of what my body looked like yep. the body for the record that legit I look at pictures like huh you thought you were what, girl? <laughs> okay. You know, I look back at that healthy, you know, athletic moving body that 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 got me from, that did all the things it was supposed to do and how much I hated it. And I sometimes still viscerally feel that. And I, I feel, and, and she still lives within me. That's the thing. If you follow the podcast, you know, I'm constantly talking about our inner children. Yep. Every single point of, of my hatred of myself because of the money that can be made off of my hatred, she still lives in there. And the good thing is I'm building this relationship with her, helping her see that she is lovable, not um, instead of her body, but just period. She mm -hmm. is lovable. She has value simply because she exists and taking that focus off. So, you know, this, this is a very relevant conversation, whether it is your body type or this notion of the, the years keep coming, but I am not supposed to age or just this whole, whole thing. So anyway, take a deep breath. <laughs> Actually, before before we take a deep breath, can I just punctuate that with one thing? A practical sure thing. I got yeah. this from a meme, and I think it's it could be helpful to folks, and it's a good reminder for me to ask myself when I'm feeling that way: who is profiting off of this emotion? Yes. To even remove it from the experience where I might be shaming myself for continuing to feel this way. 
there are external forces at play and I absolutely have a choice in pursuing my own liberation and it's not linear. I've been talking about all the successes of this community and my experiences in healing, but let me tell you, there are still days where I have an experience or a thought and I find myself thinking, oh, I wonder if I'll get smaller if I do this. And then I have to go, oh, there's that old thought again. Mm -hmm. But who is profiting off me having this experience, this emotion, this feeling? Absolutely. I, I, that is one thing, you know, especially if I'm working with someone um, who is struggling with some form of hatred towards themselves or disdain or disgust. That is one of the questions to say, who benefits from this? Mm -hmm. Who is benefiting from this moment right now? That is one question to ask. And you're absolutely right that healing in any form is not linear. And when those things pop up, the key is don't heap on yourself the shame that's been continuously heaped on you. Yeah. What if that thought popped up? And like you said, Kate, we just said, oh, there it is again. Okay. <laughs> All right. And for me, it's a, okay. Okay. Who, who is it? Who needs a little bit of my attention? You know, who who needs a little bit of my attention? Because as we go back into talking about, you know, we have this shared experience of needing to be seen and figuring out a way to do that. What I've realized is how some of my inner children work, especially my my adolescent parts, is when I when they get activated in that feeling of daydreaming of a different body, or I wonder if I would get smaller then there's an, a an overcompensation that happens. And I can begin to notice in how I'm engaging with other people. So as I was growing up, again, none of this is cognitive. Like I didn't sit and think of this, but I realized how uh, survival oriented and adaptive we are as the human species. Mm -hmm. And so what I did growing up from a, from a young age is I somehow realized that if I could make my personality as big as possible, maybe people would focus on that and not my body. Mm. If I could perform, people would focus on the performance and not my body. So I believe I'm 100% where I'm supposed to be doing what I'm supposed to be doing. But as I've been healing, I realize I am not nearly as extroverted as I present. Mm -hmm. I, there are certain things about me that as I'm walking in authenticity, I'm like, wow, that, that's not actually who I am at all, but part of my survival, see me, but don't see the thing that you're supposed to be disgusted by. And so I'm funny. Like, I honestly don't think I'm that funny, but I believe <laughs> everybody else in my life who tells me I am, like everybody's not lying, okay? So this humor though, this humor has been a deflection away from the parts of me that I don't want people to see. Sure. My ability to stand in front and, and really pull people in with my words and how I can just hold people lovingly with my words and weave a story, protective, protective. So I so resonate with what you said in the beginning of the podcast is that our healing journey can turn these survival skills and these survival strategies and patterns into these gifts. They've always been gifts, but gifts that we can used to help ourselves, to accept ourselves and to help other people. And when I start getting really performative and I have to pause and go, okay, hold on. I know this pattern. What are we doing? <laughs> What's yep. happening? And then I can chase it back to, okay, there, there's some insecurity has popped up and I got to trace it back. But I can do that now because I've done the work of trying to not 
shame myself or be mad at myself when it happens, but I get curious. Can you get curious with what's happening with you? We didn't have a lot of curiosity growing up. Could you, would you agree with that? I don't want to speak for you, but I feel like I had a lot of judgment. I don't think I had a lot of curiosity. People weren't curious. Yeah, I had to learn how to be curious. My spouse is one of the most curious people I've met. And so in the last eight years, I have doubled my capacity for curiosity because she's a model in a way that I had not had before. I was taught that it we have value by knowing things. And so I know a lot of things, which makes me <laughs> real attached to being right and real afraid of being wrong, which yes. does not cultivate or invite curiosity. You are so right. There is a vulnerability in curiosity mm-hmm. because it lets, it lets go or for, forces you to let go of the notion of I have the answer, yeah. but I want to know more. And, and two, I had to develop this, this curiosity for myself and for other people. So when I see something, instead of jumping to an immediate conclusion, which my brain is going to automatically do, I'm learning how to stop it there. Okay, stop. I wonder. I wonder is one of those phrases that I just can't say enough. I wonder how this is helping a person stay safe or alive or protective. I wonder what need is going unmet. I wonder those things about myself. And then it leads me to, oh, okay, that makes sense. And then I can have that curiosity and wonder for other people, which means I'm not isolating them. I'm not judging them. I'm not you know, heaping shame on them, but I'm inviting them into the same curiosities for themselves. And I think that is a tremendous part of the healing journey. I hear a lot of compassion in that curiosity, compassionate curiosity. Yes. Those questions you're asking are really about how can I understand myself and others? That's it. That's it. And yeah, once we realize that we don't have all the answers, it can open us up for a lot of new learning and unlearning, which for me has been more impactful than learning new stuff is unlearning all the old stuff. Whew. <laughs> That's a whole different podcast. I got it. We could talk forever. <laughs> but as we prepare ourselves to finish up, is there anything else that you would like to share Uh, with us today, just about your journey, your labor of love and how that shows up? Hmm. Well, I don't know that it's an answer to the question, but the thing I feel compelled to say is love you, mom. (laughs) Sometimes when I I tell stories about my childhood, I think, oh, my mom's going to listen to this and she's going to feel bad. And we have a great relationship, I think, an indicator of both of our health and healing where we can talk about the hard stuff and so maybe, maybe this is it. My labor of love, especially if it's a pursuit of self-love, like I said in the very beginning, has to include self-compassion. And my mother is the person who instilled in me the belief and the value that everyone is doing the very best that they can. I believe that. And I will believe that till the ends of my life. Um, and I do much better applying it to others than I do myself. And so that's a, that's a growing edge for me. And I think it's important to name those growing edges, especially when talking publicly about this stuff, because the last thing that I would want is for folks to think that any of this is a quick fix. It's always a yes. And it's always going to be a journey. And I think we're always doing the best we can. Thank you. So well said. It is always a journey. And the yes and. Thank you. So, Kate, if people uh, heard something from you and they say she is someone I need to know, 
or they were intrigued by Sense of Fatty, how could people uh, get in touch with you or reach out to you? Sure. So I am in website transition right now, but I have an old website up, Kate E, that's my middle initial, McCracken, M-C-C-R-A-C-K-E-N.com that has a contact form so you can reach out to me there. You can also find Sinsafati at C-I-N-C-I-F-A-T-T-Y.com or search for us on Facebook. If you search on Facebook, you'll find that we have a page and a group. The page is pretty inactive. We just usually publicize events there and there are no events happening right now. So join the group if you want to be a part of the community. And if you're not on Facebook, contact me through the website, contact me through my website, and I will help you figure out other ways to connect with folks on a different platform. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kate. And rounding us out, I always like to ask my guests for an interesting, fun, or perhaps little known fact about themselves. So what you got for us? So I think what's funny is that I usually say, I founded a body liberation community for <laughs> fatty, but we've already covered that. So um, I'm going to say that I have over 150 houseplants. Whoa. So I'm a plant lady. And if you want to talk about that, I'm ready for that too. Find me on social media. That is fascinating. (laughs) Listen, if you can't tell me you got to eat, you die. And so I'm thankful that my children can tell me they need to eat because I have whatever the opposite of green is. That's what color my thumbs are. So that is a very interesting fact. Thank you for sharing. I find it fascinating. Kate, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, spend some time with me today and provide a voice that I truly believe my listeners will benefit from hearing. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Awesome. To my listeners, as always, I appreciate you for tuning in. If you would like to get in touch with me, you have suggestions for content or guests, please reach out to me at my website, www.thelaborsoflove.com. We are on all the major social media outlets. Don't forget our YouTube channel, where every Thursday we have a Therapy Thursday video, four to six minutes of relevant, real talk about relationships, mental health, and trauma. And of course, don't forget to like, subscribe, share, and review the podcast. Until we connect again, you all be well.